It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hey, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles. I am Donnie, your host, and with me is a man who enjoys long drinks on the beach. It's Dale. Long drinks on the beach? Long drinks on the beach. I like long drinks. On the beach? On the beach. Okay. Not long walks, but long drinks. That's right. I ain't right. walking nowhere. Uh-uh. <laughs> walking down to the beach and drinking. Yeah, there you go. There you go. What's going on, babe, bud? What's going on with you? Uh, ready to record. Ready. You got any shout-outs or housekeeping for us today, man? I may just have a few right here on my drawing pad. I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, Miss Angela Chaplin. Thanks so much for your donation to the show. A little drop in the gas tank. We appreciate that Absolutely. so, so much. It really helps out. Appreciate that. Yes, very much. And uh, give a shout-out to our old buddy, Tuffy Mueller. He, uh... Hit us up with some news about a case and some stuff, and uh, keeping us, uh, you know, up with some 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 news, and uh, just to say uh, thanks for doing what we do. All right. So he kind of gave us a shout out. That sounds good, man. And uh, one more shout out to uh, Brittany Phelps up in New York. She uh, shared a show on her Facebook page and wrote a pretty pretty long uh, comment about uh, about the Heather Ellis uh, episode we did and mm-hmm. shared it with a friend. So we appreciate that. And if you hadn't listened to our Heather Elvis episode, go back and check it out. Yes. And you can go back and check out our old episodes, too. All in archives. All of them. And go to our website, click on that donate button, and drop a little money in the gas tank for us. And check out our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Dale's updating that stuff pretty regular. She's trying. And he does a great, great job at it, man. Well, I don't know about all that, but well, I, I'll I, try. I appreciate it. we got a little Mario action going anyway, do we? That's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, hit subscribe on YouTube. Exactly. And you can also go on our website and... Click on the subscribe button, and you'll get email notifications when an episode is dropped. Yeah, so you don't miss a thing. Not a thing. All right, Dale, we're going to get into part two of Rodney Alcala. Mm-hmm. And where we left off in part one, we were talking about where they discovered the body of Jill Parento, and she was a 21-year-old white female that was found in her apartment in Burbank. Yeah, she has been. she had been been killed pretty brutally and displayed yes yeah yeah he's pretty this guy he's a pretty sick fellow and starting part two we're gonna jump just six days ahead six days jill parento she was discovered on june the 14th of 1979 and just six days later on june the 20th of 1979 uh robin samso and her friend Bridget Welvert were at Huntington Beach, California, yep. just hanging out at the beach. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Robin had a, uh, she had uh, been taking, was it ballet lessons? She was taking ballet lessons. And uh, she's got to be where her mom had told her that they weren't going to be able to afford them anymore. So she had made a deal with the teacher that she would come in and answer the phones for her and kind of kind of like working a little job, you know, and uh, trade for free lessons. That's awesome. But they had uh, some time to kill, so her and her buddy went to the beach. Mm-hmm. And they were hanging out at the Huntington Beach when they were approached 
by a curly-haired man. Yep, long and, curly hair. And he was asking to take their photographs. Yeah, said he was doing it for uh, like a contest or something, which is yeah, that, usually his MO was a photo for something. Mm-hmm. And one of uh, Bridget's friends. Yeah, one of her, her mama's friends or her mama's neighbor or something. Yeah, it was a, it was a neighbor or relative of. An adult. Yeah, it was an adult <laughs> person. Came up to the two girls while he was talking to them and asked them if everything was okay. Yeah, and they're like, yeah, we're just going to take a picture. And she's like, I don't think that's a good idea. And she noticed that he sort of turned his head and shied away. Yeah, and he left. Disappeared. Yep. The girls separated. But what happened was Robin was on her way to ballet lessons. And, yeah. And she used Bridget's bicycle. Yeah, I think the <clears throat> the lady came up and they went actually went back to Bridget's house because she lived pretty nearby. And then uh, she'd seen she was going to be late to go so uh, she told her to take her bike yeah her yellow swim bicycle Mm -hmm. to go to to ballet lessons yeah but uh, robin didn't make it to ballet lessons nope it was like what sometime after five i think and uh the teacher called her mom yeah and said she never showed up never showed up for her her little job there and and for her ballet lessons And it was her first day on the job Mm -hmm. Mm. so they got to looking for robin everywhere yep and that same night at 11.05 p.m., Dale, a nationwide broadcast was issued for 12-year-old Robin Samso. And they were asking for any information on her whereabouts. Yeah, because uh, when she first realized she was missing, she'd called the police, but they said they couldn't do that for 24 hours. That's, why, that's so crazy. Yeah. But this is 1979. Right. So they, you know, they called and talked to the um, to Bridget's mom, and she told them the story that she had taken a bicycle and left to go, and nobody had seen her since. Mm-hmm. So nobody knew where she was. Now, Robin's friend, Bridget, yep. had identified this dark, curly-haired man. Yes. And she gave a description to the police for a composite. And she told him, you know, described him as a young, dark, curly-haired man. Yeah, and actually they said that uh, her, uh, she was so, her, her memory was so detailed they called in a forensic, a forensic artist. And uh, her name was uh, Marilyn Draws to do a composite sketch of, based off of what she remembered. Mm-hmm. And said uh, basically it was pretty spot on after the twelve year old had given them many details and had them change this and change that. Pretty much it was it was dead on. And we've got a picture of this photograph or this composite, Dale. We're going to put on our social media accounts, and everybody can see how close it was to Rodney Alcala. Right. It was very very good, especially for a, you know just a quick beating on the beach. Yeah. All right, Dale. On the same day that Robin went missing. A 20-year-old firefighter named Dana Croppa witnessed what she saw was a strange, dark-haired man dragging a young, blonde female into the woods. It looked like, from her description, she wasn't really wanting to go. She was walking stiff-legged, being forced into right. the woods. Yeah, I don't know if she was dragging her, but she looked, said she looked like she definitely didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah. Dana decided to keep this information to herself. Yeah, she was on her way to work for like a five-day um, shift and she was just driving I guess what she was like a firefighter she's like a trainee or something wasn't she uh, something like that anyway she was a firefighter ranger or something it wasn't just a straight out firefighter so she was on her way to work for a five day shift and then she just decided you know well, did I see anything was it wrong was it not was it a father and daughter and she just didn't want to walk in the woods you know so she didn't really know if she saw something or anything wrong basically I, you know Thinking about that, I don't know if I'd have reported anything. No, I don't think so. Mm-mm. She's, I mean, she's like a ranger. 
Yeah. So I'm sure you see, and then I don't really know exactly where they were, but it was, was it a pull off to where people go in the woods? It is. Because, you know, they said later that they found trash and stuff. So I'm assuming people go there often. Yeah. Like that little area or something. Yeah. So maybe it wasn't that unusual to see a car there. And and really what piqued her interest is the car he was driving was like one of the exact same kind that she had. Yeah. And that really was what caught her eye in the first place. That stood out to her. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. After this composite of Rodney Alcala was was aired on TV, he, it was distributed everywhere. Yeah, he changed his appearance. Yeah, he chemically straightened his hair. Yep, it's not curly anymore. <clears throat> yeah, it was kind of weird to his girlfriend who was, he knew he was always really uh, he was really proud of his super curly locks. Oh yeah, he would he would flash it. He, yeah, and said she came home and it was straight, and he's like, "Oh, what do you think?" He's like, uh, "Okay," <laughs> but because she didn't have a clue, no a girlfriend. She had no clue of his altered life. And he also all. changed out the carpet in his car. Yeah. Claiming it, he had spilled gasoline on it and couldn't stand the smell. Yeah, but she never noticed any gasoline smell at all. Right. She just believed anything he said. Yeah. She was, Pretty much. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he was a smart, smooth talker guy. Oh, yeah, he so was very smooth. Talking whatever. On June the 25th, 1979, uh, this firefighter, Dana Croppa, she returns to the site where she saw the dark-haired man dragging a young girl into the woods. And there she finds human remains. Right. So she just kind of walked in, hoping she wasn't going to find them, but she didn't know it had been bugging her really bad. Yeah. But then again, she didn't report it. Right. Mm-mm. So you just wonder if she didn't know she what she saw or if she just freaked her out so bad or if she just felt so bad she didn't say nothing to begin with or, or, or do we know if anything really? Kind of in a way, it might have freaked her out. I'm sure it might have messed her mind up a little bit. It would have freaked me out. Mm-hmm. And then you're thinking, man, if I stopped that day. Yeah. I mean, would you know? I don't know. I guess you don't really know. It's all connected right off the bat. You're just trying to put it all together in your head. Yeah. But about this time, Dale, the next day, you know, Rodney changed his appearance, straightened his hair and everything. Yeah. I guess these curls are starting to grow back in or straight come to pop back in yeah, yeah the, so the, he just cut it all off yeah the straighten didn't hold so yeah he cut it off cut his hair short mm-hmm. so he's uh he already knows there the, the heat's on the him. heat's getting on and uh, the composite's out and then it looks so much like him he's got to change quick mm-hmm. all right dale after receiving several convincing tips about a man who raped and attempted to murder an eight-year-old girl which was tolly shapiro right uh detective craig robertson Furthers his research on Rodney Alcala as a possible suspect in the Robin Samso case, and he decides to drive to River, Riverside, California, to obtain his mugshot. Hmm. It's, just, it's pretty weird how far technology's come. You have to drive to go get one. Yeah, but this is 1979, so right. Yeah, you know, and they even got tips from uh, the guy who was the Rodney's parole officer at one time. Mm-hmm. Said, I believe this is your guy. And he saw the mugs, uh, the composite sketch. Yeah, and then also uh, that's how good the sketch was, right? Also, the guy who witnessed uh, Rodney take tally, uh, Donald Hayes, he actually called in and he said, "You know, I, I've not been to the beach. I don't know uh, Robin, but this sounds exactly like the guy that that I saw do this all them years ago." Mm-hmm. And turned out he was right. Yep. Now. This this is what gets weird, Dale. After coincidentally watching Alcala's episode on the dating game, Detective Art Droz, which is Marilyn Droz's husband, the one that done the composite, he just happened to be at home 
and turned on the TV, I guess, to have a little bra- background noise or something. To yeah, it said that uh, he went home and uh, he couldn't wait to go in and tell Marilyn how good a job she'd done because it was getting all these tips and, and it looked really, you know, like him. So he went in and she wasn't home. So he sat down and I think he made him a drink, sat down and flipped on the TV and picked up the paper and started reading it and he heard the noise. He continued as like a dating game or sorry, he could hear the theme music coming on, so he mm-hmm. wasn't really watching it. And then he heard Alcala's name, and it freaked him out. And he looked up, and he reached in his pocket and pulled out that composite, and it was dead on. What a coincidence is right. that? So uh, what, the next day, I think he called uh, Chuck Bear Studios and asked him what was going on. And they said that was a rerun from the like original a, show. a year earlier. Right. So yeah. they sent somebody over to get a videotape copy of it from, mm-hmm. from the from the production house. That's so crazy. It was, yeah, really. Talk about timing. Yeah. Now, the detectives investigating the, the disappearance of Robin Samso, they compiled six photos of similar-looking men and showed them to people who claimed to have seen Robin at the beach the day the, she disappeared. And all of the witnesses shown in the lineup identified Rodney as the man seen with Samso. Yep. I mean, it's hard you know to not i mean rodney had a look about him and it was yeah. very distinct yes it's almost like uh richard ramirez his look yeah very except he looked like he's richard ramirez and ted bunny kind of swirled in together a little bit bon kinda, Scott kinda does, yeah. <laughs> yep well it depends when he starts changing his look he looks totally different yeah it's crazy yeah when he cuts his hair off and grows a mustache yeah he don't even look like the same guy. No, and then you know, some of these older photos, you see, he looks kind of, kind of like Manson with the, when he's gray and with the big beard and all that mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll post all these pictures. Yep. On June 29th, 1979, Dana Croppa, yeah. just remind everybody, she's the female, 20-year-old female firefighter. Park Ranger chick. Yeah. Yeah. She returns to the site where she saw the human remains. And after working in the same area earlier that day with a fellow fireman, Willem Popke, she became visibly upset. When Popke threw what he thought was a deer bone at her. Yeah, he just picked it up and threw it at her like it was being a joke. Yeah. But she got pretty upset, and Cropper returned to the site to confirm her hunch that the bones found were those of a human and not an animal. Yeah, she flipped out. And she was correct, and once again, she did not share her findings with anyone. What the heck, man? So she didn't even tell him then? No. Now, just a couple days later, on July the 2nd, uh, William Popke, he discovers the human remains while working in that area, and that Crappa he'd been with Crappa that you know a few days earlier. So I guess if they was uh, like park rangers or whatever, they was probably in there cleaning up trash and this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, working the same area, I right. guess. But unlike his coworker, Popke reports his findings of the dead body to the authorities. So at least somebody done something. Yeah. And just a few days later, an autopsy on the remains were determined that they were of a young girl around 12 years of age. And dental records confirmed that they were the remains of Robin Samso. Yeah, they had to use dental records because it was in pretty bad shape. I yeah, know. I guess animals had got to her or I something. I think the, the head was was all, the skull or whatever was apart from the body and the hands and the feet, I think. Yeah. But it was also pretty much deteriorated where there's, there wasn't very much soft tissue at all. Mm-mm. It was almost skeleton-like. Yeah. So it probably had been, I guess, partially buried maybe and then ravaged by wildlife. Because yep. it hasn't been that long, really, since. It hasn't been that long, but, yeah, I guess the animals that got to her. Right, because, you know, it'd it take a lot longer than that to break down naturally. Yeah. But, if, you know, the animals that got to her, I mean, it cleaned it out. Yeah, cleaned it off pretty good. Now, I guess Rodney about this time is feeling the heat even more, Dale. And he tells his 
current girlfriend, Elizabeth Keller, that he wants to move to Texas, Dallas, Texas. Yep. And he's wanting to open up a photography studio in Dallas. He said the career opportunities are better there. Yeah, I think he told her they actually had somebody that would back him down there if he would win. He was going to go uh, in there and check it out. Gotcha. But makes more sense since I'm sure he don't have no money because he didn't work. No, he's living <laughs> off his mama's retirement or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So he tells uh, his girlfriend Elizabeth that he's going to Dallas. Going to Dallas. And he's getting everything straightened out, and he will send for her. Right. But Rodney don't go to Dallas. Where does he go? He goes to Washington State, Seattle, Washington. A thousand miles. Yep. In the opposite direction. <laughs> opposite direction. Yep. And. While in Washington, Rodney rents a storage unit from Cecil Lockram, and he has in his possession several boxes of some of his items. Yeah, I think he drove up and asked them if they had a place, and they, they had one one uh, unit left, and he rented it on the spot Yeah, and started carrying stuff in. Yep. And then he drives back to California. It's going to be a hell of a ride. Yeah. And Rodney returns to Los Angeles. To see his girlfriend informs her that, you know, they'll be moving to Texas permanently on July 24th of 1979. But didn't he say, say anything about the trip to Seattle? No, because he went to, quote, Dallas. Exactly. <laughs> He's working everybody. He is. He's working the whole, everybody he knows. Well, if you think about it, man, he's been going a long time. He's now 36 years old. That's 11 years since he started. Yeah. So, he's this is a pretty long run for a killer. I mean, plus he's been almost caught and let go so many times it's crazy mm-hmm. on july 24th they had strong evidence against rodney and sergeant ron jenkins and detective robinson and other members of the huntington beach police department they arrive at rodney's house and they have a warrant and they allowing them to search his car and house and obtain certain evidence that they believe would connect him to the murder of robin samso yep and they're going through the house, and I think when they get in the house, the mom answers the door. Yeah, and he knocked on the door and said, "We you know we're the police. We're here." But Rodney's asleep in the bed, mm-hmm. and they go in, and they just Rodney's still asleep. Yeah, they wake him up. Yeah, hey man, get up. You wake up, and there's cops all standing around the bed. Yeah, we're here for you. Rest of you want a suspicion of murder for uh, Robin Sampson. And they're taking all kinds of stuff into evidence, and. They see a receipt, yeah, for a storage locker. Right, yeah. I think the the warrant was actually for uh, photography equipment, film, both and uh, film developed and undeveloped, and photos and all kind of stuff like that. But uh, said uh, anything not like that wasn't on the warrant, so he actually couldn't take the receipt that they found. But they did see it and thought it was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So one of the detectives actually wrote down all the information. He couldn't actually take the physical receipt, but he could write down the information off the receipt. He took out pen and paper and made a copy. He did. <laughs> exactly. Uh, today's the time, I guess, you take a picture of it with your phone, I guess. Right, yeah. Yeah, he he made a copy of that receipt and wrote it out. And Figured he just, might need it later. Yeah, you never know. After they got the necessary evidence from their search, Akala was booked on suspicion of murder of Robin Samso. Mm-hmm. And at the Huntington Beach Jail, and bail was set for $250,000. Yeah, they set it high enough where his mom couldn't get him out this time. You think about it, $1979, That's a pile. That's a lot of money today. <laughs> now, Rodney was in jail. Yep. And he has a phone call with his sister, Maria Christine, which she goes by Chrissy. Oh. 
ain't that sweet. <laughs> and they, in jail, they record their phone calls. Oh, yeah. So Rodney is telling his sister about the storage locker he has in Washington. Right. And tells her that she needs to go up there and clean it out. So was this a phone call? Was uh, actually she was there? Or is she there talking on the phone? Or do we really know? We had this conversation <laughs> off the air. And I think they were there talking on the phone through a glass. Okay. That's what I'm thinking. But she tells, Rodney tells her to go to Washington and clean out this storage locker. But they're listening, and they got it recorded. Yep. Good thing he got their receipt. Yeah. So, Sergeant McErlane and Detective Robinson attain a warrant for the storage locker rented by Rodney in Seattle, Washington. And they flew there and searched the unit. Yeah, they went the next morning, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yep. They, got, they got a flight. And after three hours of search, the officers collected several pieces of evidence, including over 1,700 photos and negatives in boxes. And one was labeled Ode to New York by John Berger. Yep. So they knew his alias. Yeah. And that way well, they already knew it was his alias. So they, <clears throat> they just they confirmed just it. Put them together right there. Yeah. And there was another one that was labeled um, something, Tally something, something Virginia or VA. But yeah. Excuse me, but I can't remember exactly what, what it was labeled, but it did have Tally's name. And also in one of the boxes, <clears throat> they found a silk bag. Yes. And it contained earrings and jewelry. Lots of jewelry. Now, almost like trophies of some of his victims. Not almost like. It was. It was trophies. <laughs> it was trophies of his victims. Right. So, deal at this time, they've got Rodney pretty much dead to right. I mean, right. They've, they've got him. Yeah, they don't have a lot of physical evidence, but they got a pile of circumstantial. Because, mm-hmm. you know, DNA is not a real big thing at this point in time. No. And nobody ever, nobody actually saw him take uh, Robin. They just kind of saying they pretty much think he did. Now, the arraignment was held for the people of the state of California versus Rodney James Acala at the municipal court in the West Judicial District of Orange County, California. And this was on July 28th, 1979. And Rodney pleaded innocent to the charges of kidnapping lewd and lavicious act upon a child under 14 mm-hmm. murder and robbery that were filed against him yeah what me didn't do it yeah he said he had an alibi he was uh at Knotberry farms uh putting in for a photographer job for the season mm-hmm. and then uh i think his sister said actually the the day before this happened he was babysitting her kid so it, it couldn't have been him and didn't she say that she had a receipt for a collect call from him that yeah. same day yeah so i don't know how they get it that quick but mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, they're, they've got a lot of people saying that he was different places and that he wasn't at Huntington Beach that day. Right. Yeah. But Akala's deputy public defender was Chris Stopel, and he was forced to step down due, due to a conflict of interest. And John Barrett was appointed as Rodney's new public defender. Yeah, his conflict of interest was because uh, some of the people that uh, Akala was in jail with, he was telling them the stuff he had done, yeah. and they were telling him. And he's like, whoa, so I got a conflict of interest, so i got to back out. Yeah. So that's what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Now, Rodney's first day of opening statements was on March 6th, 1980. And on March the 19th of 1980, this Dana Croppa, the female firefighter, considered to be the prosecution's key witness, Dale, testified that she saw Rodney 
forcibly steering a blonde girl into the woods on June the 20th of 1979, and that she saw him again the following evening on June 21st at the same location as the previous night. Right, with a, without a girl. Yes, and she also claimed to have returned to the same site on June the 25th and where she said she saw the body. Right. And while on the witness stand, she confirmed that Rodney Alcala was the man she saw on June the 20th and 21st. All right, Dale, let's get back to Robin Samso. Now, when they found her body, they... Well, they found her remains. Well, they found her remains. They found bones. Yeah. They went back to Robin's mother, Marilyn. Yeah. Yes. And they had a shoe and some other things that looked like hers. Yeah, and that's if, would, if this was her shoe. Yeah. And they... Well, she asked them to see Robin. Yeah, she went to go get her purse and her coat and said, let's go. And he's like, well, where are you going? And she's like, I'm going to go see Robin. He goes, well, no, you can't go. You need to sit down. She goes, well, why can't I go see her? I said, well, ma'am, you don't understand. It took us at least three days to identify her. And she really got upset with him. She goes, what are you you talking about? Why does it take you three days to identify her? I mean, how many 12-year-old long blonde-headed girls have gone missing here? And that's when he said, there's no hair. There was no hair. Mm-mm. And that's when she just hit her like a ton of bricks. Yeah. So, yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah. So it it really hurt her bad. Yeah. Especially finding out that way. Mm-hmm. Now, getting back to the trial, Dale, there was an inmate, Robert J. Dove. He testified that he heard Rodney tell another Orange County inmate, uh, Michael Hera, discussed the death of Robin Sanso. And... Michael Hera testified by elaborating on a conversation with Rodney discussing the details of Samso's kidnapping and death. But now, on April of 1980, the defense asked for a dismissal of the kidnapping charge because there seemed to be no physical proof that the kidnapping even occurred. And according to the California death penalty law, if kidnapping and murder occurred together, the defendant may be eligible for the death sentence. But due to the special circumstance law, Dale... And his belief that the prosecution, you know, they didn't provide sufficient evidence for the change. The judge approved the defense's request for the dismissal of performing a lewd or lavicious act upon a child under 14. Right. But now, Dale, during this whole trial, the they were trying to discredit Cropper's uh, testimony. Yeah, she kept changing her times and her dates, her times and yeah. her dates. It was like three or four times. Yeah. Which I don't know why she was so having such a hard time unless she was just really mentally I think it, I think like we said earlier, I think it mentally affected her. Right, you know, but I think her her first day of her five day stint there was on the twentieth, so she should at least have that day, right? But I don't, I'm, you know, I guess after you think about it so much, you just start getting scrambled. And then, did you see it or did you not see it? You probably mm-hmm. start questioning yourself after a while. Yep. Now, on April twenty ninth of nineteen eighty, the first day of jury deliberations. Now they requested to have some of Crappa's testimony read back to them, and were unable to reach a verdict by the end of the day. But the jury did reach a verdict on the second day of deliberations. And on April 30th, on the charges of first-degree murder and the use of a deadly weapon and forced kidnapping, the jury found Rodney Alcala guilty. Right. Yeah. And the penalty phase of the trial ended, and jurors reached a verdict of the death after only four hours of deliberation. Well, you know, Don, um, whether he was... <laughs> he was... Uh, he was found guilty or not, he was going to get the death penalty. Oh, yeah. Because uh, Marilyn was going to make sure. Yep. 
You know, what I mean by that is Marilyn, which is uh, Robin's mother, was uh, sitting behind him, and she had a gun in her pocket. How did she get into jail or the courthouse with a gun in her well, pocket? I'm assuming book? in 1980 it wasn't really. A little bit more lax, you think? Yeah, it was nothing. Surely they had metal detectors back then, though, you know? I don't know. Apparently not. Unless she went in. Unless with, she was going in with the prosecution. Yeah. Which could be. Could have. Yeah, but she had a gun, her hand on the pistol inside of her pocketbook the yeah. whole time. And said Rodney would look at her and make kissy faces at her. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, uh, she, she had already made up her mind that if they was going to let him go, she was not. Yeah. But when, they, she was found, when he was found guilty and all that, she almost, I think she said she actually smelled Robin's shampoo. Yeah. And it, a relief and calmness came over her. Right. And she took her hand off the gun. Yep. So either way, Rodney was going to get the death penalty. Yep. But after he was sentenced to Robin Samso's murder, Dale, the verdict was overturned by the California Supreme Court because jurors had been improperly informed of his prior sex crimes. The prosecution put his, put Rodney's record in, and the judge agreed and allowed the record to be in. Mm-hmm. So that's how it was in the first place, and then the Supreme Court said that uh, it should not have been in, so that's why it was overturned. All right, Dale, in 1986, after a second trial virtually identical to the first, except for the omission of the prior criminal record testimony, he was again convicted and sentenced to death. Right. And a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel nullified the second conviction, in part because a witness was not allowed to support Rodney's contention that the park ranger who was proper, who found Samso's body, had been hypnotized by police investigators. What the hell? Yeah. So this dude is finding every way to play the system yep to, to get out of uh, the death penalty yeah now there's a third trial so we started in what 79 and then this one was in 86 and now we're at 2003 yeah all this time he's been in prison but still mm-hmm. so poor old robin's mama's got to go through this a third time yeah so just to back up on april the 2nd of 2001 a federal appellate court overturns Rodney Deathsense in the Samso case, ruling that the Superior Court judge, judge precluded the defense from presenting evidence material to significant issues. That was how they got out of it. Mm. Now, <laughs> on June the 5th of 2003, which is a little over two years later, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office filed murder charges against Rodney, alleging that he killed Wickstead during a burglary and rape. Right, a big difference is coming up now, Donnie, is because uh, DNA has made giant yeah. strides. Yeah, it's made leaps and bounds by this time. Yes, so it's, you know, it's going to be a little bit harder to get out now. And in 2003, while preparing their third prosecution, the Orange County, California investigators learned that Rodney's DNA, which was sampled under a new state law, over his objections matched semen left at the rape murder scenes of two women in Los Angeles. Uh, additional evidence, including another cold case DNA match in 2004, led to Rodney's indictment for the murders of four additional women. Jill Barkham, who was 18, she was a, a New York runaway found rolled up in a ball mm. in a Los Angeles ravine in 1977, and originally thought to have been a victim of the Hillside Strangler. Right. Was uh, Georgia Wickstead, one we just mentioned, who was 27, and she was bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment in 1977. 
So all these old killings is coming out because of DNA. Yes. So now they've got him for sure. And Charlotte Lamb, who was 31, raped and strangled and left in her laundry room, the one we talked about in episode one, or part one, and she was from El Segunda. And then Jill uh, Jill Parento, she was 21, and she was killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. Right. All those were linked because of the DNA evidence. And like we said, they were found, posed, and carefully chosen positions. Yep. So they had all the same M.O. And another pair of earrings found in Rodney's Seattle storage locker had residue that matched Charlotte Lamb's DNA. So he, they've got him. Yeah. Yeah. And during Rodney's incarceration between the second and third trials, he wrote a self-published book called You, the Jury, in which he claimed his innocence in the Robin Samso case and suggested a different suspect. He also filed two lawsuits against the California penal system for a slip and fall incident. <laughs> and I guess he was in prison for refusing to provide him a low-fat diet. Yeah. <laughs> You gonna sue him for that? Yeah, I mean you're on you're on death row, but I need a low fat diet, man. <laughs> now, still in 2003, the prosecutors entered a motion to join the Samso charges with those of the four newly discovered victims that we just talked about right. because of DNA. Oh, pile. Yeah, and Rodney's attorney contested all this as one of them explained: if, if you're a juror, a juror, and you hear one murder case, you may be able to be to have reasonable doubt, but there's very hard to say. You have reasonable doubt in all five, especially when four or five aren't alleged by witnesses but are proven by DNA matches. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2006, three years later, the California Supreme Court ruled in prosecution's favor, and in February of 2010, Rodney stood trial on five joint charges. So these, his trials have been going on. It's 2010 now. We started, what, in the 70s or Yeah. They showed the jury a portion of his 1978 appearance on the dating game in an attempt to prove that the earrings found in the Seattle locker were his and not Samso's. Yeah, he showed that. Because yep. he, he had fired his attorney and was, was being his own attorney. Yeah. Like that ever works. And he would um, even put himself on the stand and answer and, and ask himself in different voices. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, would be a, that would be a show, man. I wish there was a video of that. Yeah. Now, Jeb Mills, he was an actor, and he competed against Rodney on the dating game. He was the bachelor number two. Yeah, he's a dude from Seinfeld, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he told a reporter that earrings were not yet socially acceptable for men in 1978. And he'd never seen a man with an earring in his ear. Right. He said, I would have seen him. I don't think he had done it. He said he would have noticed him. He's lying. Yep. Now, Rodney made no significant attempt to dispute the four added charges other than to assert that he couldn't remember killing any of the women. (laughs) As part of his closing argument, he played the Arlo Guthrie song, Alice's Restaurant. It's about a protagonist that tells a psychiatrist that he wants to kill. Yeah, he's trying to get out of going to the Army. Yeah. So he just starts telling all this mess. This song's about two hours long. (laughs) Yeah. I went up there, I said, shrink, I want to kill, I want to kill, I want to see blood, gore, and guts, and veins, and my teeth eat dead, burnt bodies, I mean kill, and I started jumping up and down, yelling, kill. And after two, less than two days of deliberation, the jury convinced, or they, the jury convicted him on all five counts 
of first-degree murder. And a surprise witness, Dale, in this trial was Tally Shapiro. Yep. Which was Rodney's first known victim. Yep. The little girl that lived. Yep. Is now the one. She wouldn't come back when she was little. Her parents wouldn't bring her back to, to put him away. So she got her day in court. She got her day in court. She mm. finally come in to face him. When I first heard that, I got cold chills. Yeah. Man, that was just that was just freaking awesome. Yeah. I'm telling you. Yep. You know, and that was probably the last thing he ever thought was going to happen. Now, Richard Rappaport, he was a psychiatrist paid by Rodney and the defense, and he testified that borderline personality disorder could explain Rodney's claim that he had no memory of committing the murders. And the prosecutor argued that Rodney was a sexual predator who knew what he was doing and knew it was wrong and didn't care. And in March of 2010, Rodney was sentenced to death for the third time. Third time. Third time. This may be the charm. But he can still appeal. <laughs> he gets automatic appeal, doesn't he? Yeah, automatic appeal with death penalty. Which makes no sense to me. And mm-hmm. you know, I know a lot of people think different about capital punishment, but I think if you're dead to rights, you shouldn't be sitting there in a damn 30 years. All right, Dale. Let's get into March the 10th of March of 2010 when the Huntington Beach, California, and New York City Police Departments they released 120 of Rodney's photographs that they found in that storage locker. Right. They were thousands of photographs, but they couldn't release them all because they were... There's some naked stuff going on. Yeah, and, and underage <laughs> stuff right. going on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they did release 120 of these photographs, and they sought the public's help in identifying them. Right. Um, if you know these people or if they're missing, please let us know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and... And approximately 900 additional photographs could not be made public. Police said they were called, like we said, they were too sexually explicit. Right. And in the few weeks, the police reported that approximately 21 women had came forward to identify themselves. And at least six families said they believed they recognized loved ones who had disappeared years ago and were never found. Right. So this you know, leads me to believe that Rodney had a, a victim count way up. Man, there's no telling. Yep. No tell. In fact, crapper girl wouldn't have just parent drove by that day and seen him going in the woods. They probably never would have found that little girl either. Now, none of the photographs were connected to a missing persons case or unsolved murder until 2013 when a family member recognized a photo of Christine Thornton. She was 28, and her body was found in Wyoming in 1982. Wow. Wyoming. And it shows a photograph of Christine on a motorcycle. And it looked like she was just, you know, just having a good time. She met Rodney, taking pictures of her and stuff. Right. And then she just went missing. What the hell is he doing in Wyoming? Was but they, wasn't he in probation then? Yeah, but they thought that Christine may have been pregnant and mm-hmm. was just leaving. Running away? Yeah, running away, but um, they don't know for sure. Right. Now... In 2010, Dale, the Seattle police named Rodney as a person of interest in an unsolved murder of Antoinette Whitaker, who was 13 in July of 1977, and Joyce Gaunt, who was 17 in February of 1978. Rodney rented the Seattle stories, like we talked about, in which they found all the, the jewelry belongings to two of his California victims, and other cold cases were reportedly 
targeted for reinvestigation in California, New York, New Hampshire, and Arizona. And in March of 2011, investigators in Marion County, California, which is north of San Francisco, they announced that they were confident that Rodney was responsible for the 1977 murder of Pamela Jean Lamson, who disappeared after making a trip to the Fishman's Wharf. What was she going there for? Photographs. Mm. To be photographed. (laughs) And her battered naked body was found in Marin County near a hiking trail. Um, No fingerprints or usable DNA were found, and charges are unlikely to be filed, but police claim that there is sufficient evidence, you know, to think that Rodney did commit this crime. Yeah, you probably just think that would be right. Yep. In 1977, going to get her photographed. Yep. Yep. In September of 2016, Rodney was charged with the murder of 28-year-old Christine Ruth Thornton, who disappeared in 1977. In 2013, a relative recognized her as a the subject of Rodney's photos, which was made public by the Huntington Beach Police Department and New York PD. Her body was found in Sweetwater County, Wyoming, in 1982, but was not identified until 2015 when DNA supplied by Thornton's relatives matched tissue samples from her remains. And Rodney did admit taking photos, but not to killing the woman. And they said when he, they took the photograph in there, they looked, he looked at it, in the jail and he was looking at her on the motorcycle he just traced his finger across the photograph like tracing her body weirdo yeah just crazy but he did admit it taking the photograph yeah and on December the 14th of 2012 Rodney did plead guilty to the New York murders of Ellen Hover which was you know, the goddaughter of Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin right. and Cornelia Creeley she was the TWA flight attendant Right. Was it Michael was you went by? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Cornelia Michael Crilly. Right. And we've got pictures of most of his victims that we'll post on our... Yeah, well, I don't know about most of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just don't know how many there are. I know he's been uh, convicted now of at least 32 murders and from 10 different states. So you know there's a pile more that, that nobody knows about. Now, all these photographs that uh, they seized from that storage locker most of them can be found online the ones that are appropriate yeah and you can look at these photographs all you have to do is look for just search rodney alcala photographs yeah yep. and these photographs of these women will, will come up yep. not the unknowns and i recommend you do you know somebody you might know some of them know somebody yeah please please check them out it's just pretty pretty wild if you know of anybody that's been missing or gone since the 70s mid 70s late 70s uh, you may help identify somebody. Yep. You never know. Pretty, pretty well. But today, Rodney is still in prison yeah. on death row. Yeah, and the bad thing is uh, poor old Robin's mom didn't didn't live to see him get put to death. Mm-mm, no. Since she passed away. Yep. But Rodney will never be put to death because all the appeals going on. Yeah. He'll die in prison probably. Yep. But at least Robin didn't get a memorial on Huntington Beach, and that was pretty cool. Yeah. That her mom hasn't. They asked her what they wanted to put on it. And she said, I don't care what you put on it about Robin as long as you don't put his name on it. Exactly. And then we'll post pictures of that too. It's pretty cool. It was a place right near where she was playing that day. Mm-hmm. So, in overall, what do you think? Where's this guy rank? Man, he's right up there. I mean, he's up there with Bundy and Gacy and. 
uh, if not worse. Yeah, I agree. Green River Killer, Gary Ridgeway. I mean, he's up there because his kill numbers are way up. They got to be there. They're way up, and it went forever. And went. I mean, it's on and on, and he's just as sadistic as any of the other so-called big name guys. And I don't mean to hang trying to put them over or nothing or say they're special or nothing. It's just there's a few that you hear all the time, you know. And then some like this guy, and you don't really hear much about him or you just hear dating game killers. So you just kind of move on because you don't think much about it. But when you dig into it, this guy was a badass. Yeah, he was pretty sadistic. Yes, very. And they throw these names on them that make them sound funny. Corny, yeah. Yeah, but they're they're bad people. <laughs> yeah, awful. Yeah. I mean, this guy, he was – he was a kid killer, you know. He didn't. Yep. Care. He didn't care. Yep. Sad, it takes, sad. That's a pretty damn takes a a special kind of trash. Sick. <laughs> yeah. To do something like that. All right. That is uh, Rodney Alcala. Rodney Alcala. All right. We're gonna get out of here, Dale. Let's do it, bro. We want everyone to be safe. Be careful and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is The The Crack Crack House Chronicles. Chronicles.